This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Here again is Dan Loney. And welcome back to the Monday edition of Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111. As we mentioned, we are coming to you today from the Philadelphia Convention Center. It is the Power of Performance Conference presented by the National Black MBA Association and Prospanica. As we mentioned uh, in the first hour, you heard some great interviews, amazing number of business stories at this conference from companies both large and small across the United States. So sit back and enjoy the second hour here on Knowledge at Wharton, coming to you from the Philadelphia Convention Center and the Power Performance Conference. Well, how can companies grow? There is an increasing understanding that one of the components to do this is to build from within. Many larger companies are hoping to see more contribution from the employees to help bring forth entrepreneurial ideas. But this trend is known as intrapreneurship. One of the panels here at the conference deals with that topic, and uh, Dr. William Picard uh, was part of that discussion, so we invited him on to discuss. He is a chairman of the Global Automotive Alliance, as well as co-managing partner of the MGM Grand Detroit Casino, but also has a long history working with McDonald's as a franchisee. And it's a pleasure to have you here, sir. Thank you for your time. Great to be here, sir. So uh, tell us uh, your views on, on this this push to try and have more people within the company driving change, driving the new ideas, this entrepreneurship. Well, obviously, historically, you know, American enterprise was you stay in your cell. If you were in finance, you did finance. Mm-hmm. If you were in manufacturing, you did manufacturing. And Lord knows if you were in marketing, no one could tell you how to sell the truck. Right. And I think uh, that was uh, historically what happened, and that also historically what created some problems. And today I believe you have many, many more cross-functional teams. And I think a lot of the research, pharmaceutical especially, has been people who worked in, quote, big corporations mm-hmm. who had a passion for a particular patent or a particular product, and they just went to work on it. And some of the results has been outstanding. And the same thing with McDonald's, as an example. All yeah. of, most of our products came from guys and women who had to make payroll every Friday. So you have the fish sandwich or the filet sandwich. You have the Big Mac. You have the Chicken Mighty Wings, which started in my restaurant. So you have all these kinds of glowing examples of people within the corporation but find a way to do something externally. If you wouldn't mind, take a, a second because you told me the story about how the fish sandwich came about. And I think it's, it's a phenomenal story as to how McDonald's, which is you know, for years known as a burger franchise, mm-hmm. actually came into the process of starting to sell a fish sandwich. Yeah. In the 50s, that was an owner-operator in the Cincinnati area. And at that time in America, in the late 50s, you know, Catholics were very much traditional and not eating meat on Friday. Right. So this gentleman saw his sales go down, down, down. He said, oh, my God, I have to make payroll. I have to pay those state taxes and things like that. Yeah. So he just said, you know what? We're going to create a fish sandwich. And he started working on it. And, of course, McDonald's said, no, no, that is not an approved menu item. Stop <laughs> selling it right away or else. And, of course, they came down. They looked at his sales and said, you know, let's refine this thing. Let's make it better. And today we have the filet of fish. So what do you think has changed, though, kind of in the mindset of companies that they are more willing to be acceptable of ideas from people within the companies? As you said, it it was almost taboo for a long period of time. It's not that way anymore. Well, I think success breeds success. A number of companies, 3M, have had all kinds of people inside come up with great ideas. The stick'em thing is one of my favorite ones, you know. (laughs) And so I think leadership today is much more acceptable for these people who go away and do their own thing on company time and company products emerge from that. And then sometimes the enterprise leaves the company with the company's blessing. But today, I think people are very, very flexible in terms of letting engineers or creative people do their thing, whether it's marketing or manufacturing. I know I come out of an automobile background, and some of my guys have come up with things in a small We were only, what, $300 million. And one of my guys came up with something that was revolutionary in the delivery of fuel delivery systems in General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler. What, do you, what is, speaking of your automotive background, what do you think is the state of the automotive industry right now because of the Changing. fact Changing. Exactly. Fast. Exactly. Maybe be, too fast. Because, because of everything that they went through around the recession and obviously have had to build back. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I think the one thing that we all have learned is that you can do more with less. Okay. You know, and historically, I talked to someone just last night, and I said, I wouldn't say this publicly, but here we are. Most, and I've been at this game 47 years. I was only three when I started. But most, <laughs> most challenges that are faced by business people, we always think is finance. I would suggest it's primarily management. And okay. the decisions we make as managers. Now, obviously, if you don't have the right amount of financing, that makes it more challenging. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I would say it's management more so than finance. With your background in Detroit, how is Detroit doing right now? Because we talked about this two years ago, about the recovery that Detroit was trying to go through and put in place. And obviously, the investment in companies like Goldman Sachs and others were trying to, to make in Detroit. What's the this, this state of Detroit right now? Well, I've been in that great city 47 years, starting out at McDonald's in 1971. And I would not have predicted the kind of success, the turnaround that we've seen only seven years ago. I missed it. I missed it. But I'm very excited. How so? Because um, I went south in 1997. I knew that automotive was going – I read every day everything I can get my hands on, and I knew that the transplants were going to come to this country, and they were not going to come to the Rust Belt. And I was fortunate enough to land in Charleston, South Carolina, and down in Cottondale in Vance, Alabama with Mercedes. I saw it coming. So I was more focused on the South the last 15 years of my life than I was Detroit. But that's our base. That's where our corporate office is. And we're still there. We'll be there forever. Which, which is interesting. You mentioned South Carolina, and obviously that's a state that has been very uh, aggressive in terms of trying to bring business to that state, mm-hmm. the auto industry being being one of them. Yeah. Uh, they, they have Volvo coming. Uh, they have BMW. Uh, they have Michelin. Uh, they now it's a little automotive. They have Boeing. <laughs> yeah. So then, you know, you're going to have three or four more major automotive manufacturing plants somewhere in these United States, I would say in the next seven, eight years. And those who know first will benefit tremendously. But it is interesting that, that the fact that we have seen an unbelievable, it, it's almost like a battle going on between states of trying to gain these companies to come in. You mentioned all that's going on in South Carolina. Amazon makes the announcement that they want to have an HQ2 here in Philadelphia. They're trying to do anything they can. Good luck. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, what what is it that you see that, that, I mean, the states obviously see the bottom line, but it, it's almost like it's a feeding frenzy right now. Well, it is. And I like, I, I, you know, I teach entrepreneurship at the Ross School of Business historic in the last 10, 12 years. Not anymore. But one of my favorite stories is Alabama. I was on the transition team for Ronald Reagan, and you know, you sit around at night, you meet guys from the South and the North and the West, and the Republicans, we sit around, and we were young men, 40-some years old, about how the world was going to change. Well, I met a guy from the governor's staff in Alabama. He was a political operative, Mm -hmm. and so we just stayed in touch over the years, and they knew I'm from a little town called LaGrange, Georgia, Mm -hmm. which is about 30 minutes from Atlanta, Georgia, by telephone. But anyway, (laughs) so we would stay on the phone a little bit. So he called me in 1992 and said, Picard? You better pack up and come on back to Georgia. I said, what's up? He said, we're going to get a Mercedes. I said, you out of your mind. You're going to get a Mercedes plant in Alabama. Long story short, the governor, good Republican governor at that time, made the announcement, Mercedes is coming to Vance, Alabama. They're going to bring thousands and thousands. And they did. And the benefits that a lot of these states are giving these plants to come to these are overweighed by the bottom line of the jobs and the, and the, and the overall money that it creates. Listen to the punchline. That great Republican governor spent $1 billion of taxpayers' money in Alabama to bring in these Germans from Germany. Yeah. Next election, he loses. Yeah. They throw him out. Today, Alabama is the second largest Automotive manufacturing state in America. That's cr- how how has that happened? I mean, because everybody focuses on Detroit and Michigan, and here comes Alabama, just kind of, of pulling it apart out of nowhere. And Mercedes just announced their electric car and all the things that go thereof. Yeah. Another billion dollar investment is coming to Alabama. So you know, it's a feeding frenzy, but. People tend to go where the networks are, the suppliers, and the infrastructure. And once you have it, mm-hmm. be it in South Carolina with BMW or be it in Alabama, 
It's a great time. Dr. William Picard uh, joining us on the show. He is chairman of the Global Automotive Alliance as well as co-managing partner of MGM Grand Detroit Casino and as well a longtime franchisee with McDonald's. You're listening to Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. If I can for a second, I want to switch to the casino industry with your connections with that. I mean, that's an industry. Talk about expansion and going to places that a lot of people never figured it would. There's an industry that has exploded. I mean, it used to be Las Vegas and Atlantic City, and that was pretty much it. Now it has become a key, well, at least a lot of states believe to be a key revenue driver. New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, you can name them up and down across the United States. Well, first of all, a disclaimer, I'm Baptist. and I don't believe in drinking and dancing and things like that and gambling. But if you can make a decent buck, why not? Right. I think one, it brings jobs, without a doubt. I just had uh, dinner last week at the New Harbor over in uh, the Baltimore area, mm-hmm. uh, MGM. Unbelievable facility, beautiful facility. People there with their families dining. And now you see us more and more having a, quote, retail part that can be entered and exited without going into the gaming facilities. Yeah. So I just think it creates jobs. It gives people another form of recreation. And as long as it's reasonable, it's a great changer for communities well the entertainment part of it is probably the the biggest driver when you think about some of the places in las vegas they've almost become like carnivals instead of just being thought of as the casino yeah and family entertainment yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, we're talking to uh, dr william picard here on sirius xm 111 so do you is your your expectation that we will see more and more entrepreneurship as we continue on without a doubt without a doubt i i think that's the that's what makes it so exciting you know most people uh, when you get around like-minded people, great things happen. Mm-hmm. I was never an athlete. I was never a football in college or anything like that. But I'm told when you can get a cadre of people together in any endeavor, you quadruple the results. Mm-hmm. Because excellent breeze, excellent excitement breeze, excitement, and the end results is more and better. Is it a generational shift that's pushing this? or Partly. Is, is, it, is it more the bottom line? Both. Okay. Both. These millennials, good luck. Uh, I'm not so sure they like to work in teams, but they are different, and they bring a lot of creativity to the workplace. So how do you think that's going to change the the country as a whole with that different mindset? I mean, obviously, the bottom line is to still try and drive growth, but you're doing it from kind of a different perspective. I think you'll see a lot more individual, small, mom-and-pop business. I think you might even see cottage industries spring up again. Where people can do things from small remote areas in their home, and with the logistics that we have today, you just call FedEx or Uber and put it on. Look what McDonald's did with delivery. Uber is yeah. our delivery engine. We don't have five more people to deliver. It's Uber. Well, what about the technology aspect that we're seeing in some McDonald's locations? Instead of having the person you talk to at the counter to put your order in, they're starting in some places to put the electronic ordering system efficiency. in. Efficiency. Yeah. That's what it. That's what it is. Just yes. strictly efficiency. Yes. Yeah. Uh, is is then what do you see for McDonald's going forward? Because there's a company that obviously went through some hard times, uh, but the latest quarterly numbers that that came out showed that they were starting to see some growth once again. Well, I think the menu is changing a little bit. The eating habits of America has changed drastically. We were a little slow out the box. But I think we now have a team in place that is uh, visionary, and you will see new and exciting products come out that are fit for the urban, mobile, young consumers. Yeah. It's a great pleasure meeting you. Thank you very much, sir. Thank, Thank you. you for your time. Dr. William Picard, as we mentioned, uh, chairman of the Global Automotive Alliance, co-managing partner of the MGM Grand at Detroit Casino, and a longtime franchisee with McDonald's. Well, we have seen how the sharing economy has grown in the last few years, but what are the strategies needed for some traditional firms to be able to capitalize off of that success and grow their own business? Les Matthews is MasterCard Senior Vice President of Business Development and Card Management, and he joins us here to discuss some of those next steps. Thank you for your time today. Greatly appreciate it. Yeah, happy to be here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So what have you seen about how digital has been affecting companies like yours, especially with the variety of new payment options and and other pieces. And how has that impacted MasterCard? It's impacted us in a lot of ways. I I think really the the start of the impact is in our own internal culture and developing and driving a culture of of innovation, right? So 
we are a 50-year-old company who, for the first 45 years, pretty much stayed the same. Right. The last five years has been uh, has seen more change in the first 45, and I'll, and that's being driven by the digital revolution. Right. Yeah. We we really think strongly uh, about the idea that digital is transforming not only the payments landscape, it's transforming the world. And as a technology company, we want to be on the, in the center of that. We're not just a processing company anymore. We provide technology services. We provide solutions for all types of players in the ecosystem, but not yeah. just banks, right? Retailers and car manufacturers, um, um, clothing manufacturers, you, you name it. We're working with them to um, insert the digital technologies and capabilities that we're developing. And we, we feel like if we don't do this, we're going to fail as a company. Is it your expectation that we're going to see, I don't know, it might be 10 years off, 20 years off, a time where MasterCard as a company, when you think about the credit card business, that it's not going to have a physical card anymore because everything will be at the touch of a person's finger on their smartphone? Yes, and I don't think it's going to be 10 or 20 years off. There, listen, plastic's not going to go away anytime soon, right? I mean, there are just going to be some people who, until they die, will want to, will want to be, will be plastic. Right. But, you know, I can, you know, literally go through my day without pulling out a piece of plastic. And what we're developing from an infrastructure perspective is form factor agnostic, meaning that it doesn't matter if it's on a piece of plastic, if it's in your phone, if it's in a ring, if it's in a car, Um Fitbit is a is a partnership we just announced. It's in mm. you know in your Fitbit. We're building technologies that are form factor agnostic that will be can be utilized anywhere and everywhere where payment is accepted. And we want to make it easy for you, and we don't want you to have to pull out your piece of plastic. But it's not even an option for your company. I mean, this is something that you have to do, or you're going to be left behind. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. No, we. I mean, we we have to do this, right? Um, it's it's table stakes. And if we don't do it, someone else is going to do it. Right. One of these tech companies um, that are disrupting the industry is, you know, ready and waiting to eat our lunch, um, you know, if we don't do it. So how has the onset of companies like Uber and Airbnb affected MasterCard? They're big partners of ours, actually. So um, I currently am in a role where I manage 50-plus regional banks in the U.S., yeah. but that's fairly new for me. I just move back to the East Coast from Silicon Valley where I manage – Uber and Amazon and Apple and Facebook, Google, all these technology companies, all the startups that are coming out of there building these these products. And when you think about what Uber and Airbnb is doing is um, they don't own a real product. They're a software company. They move a lot of money around. And we want to help them move money. So whether it's me paying my Uber driver or Uber paying its drivers, um, we help them with that technology. Um, we help Airbnb, we help Lyft, we help all these sharing economy companies move money around in an efficient, safe manner. And, and I can't emphasize the security enough because that's yeah, a huge yeah. component of what we do is make sure that it's secure um, and it's convenient. So an Uber driver, you know, years ago was, you know, having to wait and get a paycheck, a paper paycheck on a weekly basis. Right. Now they can effectively get their money real time. You mentioned the security part of it, and obviously that is a, it's a huge component for, for pretty much any company these yeah, days yeah. Uh, because of what we're seeing now. And, and with the news coming out, it seems like almost every week yeah. where we're seeing some sort of hack happen this, uh, you know, to a company. So, I mean, what are some of the things that you have to work with these other companies on in terms of the security? Because you're talking about mountains of data mm -hmm. that is being collected both by you and by the other companies on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, yeah. So we uh, work to co-innovate with a lot of these companies. Um, we, there's, there's a lot we can learn from the technology companies. But, you know, we as a company, we're very proud to say that our core processing system in 50 years has never been breached, right? We're constantly monitoring. I mean, if you were to go to our, our technology center in St. Louis, it would look like the Pentagon. Right. We're constantly monitoring anomalies within our system. We're constantly changing how we protect the system. We're constantly innovating. We buy companies. We've bought in several security companies that provide fraud services not only for us but also for our partners. Right. Um, but it, it is, it's a process where you have to be so vigilant. You have to be constantly um, improving because the fraudsters are constantly attacking yeah. you and they're constantly evolving. Now, as you're going through this, this transformation because of all the digital that is out there, 
where you are right now, are you at about a 50-50 ratio in terms of digital compared to the the old-fashioned hard you know, card services these days, or are you even tipping more, you know, more than maybe 60, 40 towards the digital now? You mean in terms of the payment, the actual payment yeah. itself? And the systems. Yeah. yeah. And the systems. No, we're, we're still, um, the way that we look at it is we look at it as sort of uh, card present. So meaning actual point of sale payments right. um, versus card not present, meaning e-commerce or in-app payments, things like that. And it's still heavily weighted towards, and I, I won't quote the number just because I'll, I'll get in trouble if I do, but sure, yeah. we're still heavily weighted towards uh, card, the card present, the point of sale payments. But what we're seeing is really strong growth. Right. Um, there's also this idea of convergence, right? So what is a card present payment? What is a card not present payment? Right. When you go to... Um, a store and you check out in that store using your your smartphone, are you present or are you not present? Right. Those are questions that we're asking. And those have security implications that, we've, that we're, we solve for. So then what does something like, if you go back a couple of years, the target breach, what does something like that do to how Target thinks about it, but also how you think about it as well, because that was right at the payment yeah. systems yeah. In, in so many of their stores yeah. across the United States. Yeah. Well, Target really leaned on us after that breach, quite frankly, in terms of helping them figure out how do they avoid that. Right. A big part of what we're doing is tokenization. And the easiest way to explain that is one-time use numbers, right? Sure. Yeah. So if all of those cards had been tokenized, the impact would have been much smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would have been able to instantaneously replace those breached card numbers with new card numbers um, via a token. That's what we call it. And so tokenization is a big part of our security strategy, both with our our partner financial institutions and our retailers. They're all focused on how do we tokenize card numbers to make sure that if they are stolen, if they are breached, that there's very limited use and you can actually turn them off with the switch of a button. And and I'm guessing part of that continues, as you mentioned, you're working with banks now. So I would imagine that kind of same philosophy is is very important to banking institutions. Absolutely. Absolutely. A big part of why I'm now in this new role working with the banks is because of the education I picked up working with the digital guys and understanding, you know, how they operate, the security standards, what makes sense, and being able to sort of take that over to the banks and say, this is what you got to think about. This is right. what needs to be core part of your digital strategy. And it, it's really an easy sell, quite frankly. I mean, th- these banks get it. Um, most of them are in the digital context, are already tokenizing their cards. Right. And if they're not yet, they're moving quickly to it. You know, Apple Pay is a great example of tokenization. Samsung Pay, um, Android Pay, they're great examples of tokenization. All those transactions are tokenized, um, you know, with, with strong um, cryptography embedded in them. Well, and I, and I would think that also just the security features that, say, an Apple iPhone may have or, you know, a Samsung phone, whatever it might be, the security features that are already built into that that the that those companies put in that just enhances what you're trying to do in terms of having that payment system on that smartphone. Yes, yes. But there's a balance, right, between it being too, you know, uh, hard to use. Like EMV is a great example, right? EMV makes the ecosystem safer. It's pushing fraud to the e-commerce and the digital context. Right. Um, but the payments are slower at the point of sale. So how do you balance ease of use with, with security? Security always trumps ease of use, but right. it, it, it is still a balancing act. Being somebody that's, that's involved uh, with a company like MasterCard, I'd be very interested to get your opinion on, on Bitcoin because it, it is seemingly kind of an area that we hear about but not many people understand. And there's obviously a lot of question as whether or not this is going to be something moving forward that we are going to use as a currency in our society. Yeah. What do you think? As a company, we are bullish on blockchain technology, right. but Bitcoin, not so much. Okay. I mean, you, heard, you probably heard Jamie Dimon say a couple of weeks yeah. ago, yeah. you know, it's, it, it, it's just too volatile. And until it's regulated in an appropriate way. Now, cryptocurrency is, is a valid in, in idea, right? And if you can do it the right way, in a way that takes out the volatility and the risk, I think it has great value in the financial payments e- ecosystem. Do you think the government can do that within the the system of finance that we have in this country right now? I, I mean, to, to <laughs> this government? Well, right. <laughs> Not necessarily this one, but government with, yeah. you know, quotation marks around it. Because, I mean, we are we are still a society, even though we have changed over where, and, and I'm one that I've 
rarely carry cash anymore. Yeah. You know, I will swipe more so, you know, nine times out of ten than I will actually pay cash for something. But but the cash is still a huge part of, of our society. Yeah. And I wonder if, you know, if you think that we can make that switch from actual physical cash to some sort of digital cash to, to basically have our, our lives run off of here in the United States. Yeah, I think, you know, there's two parts of that question. I'll answer the last part first, which is I think a cashless society is inevitable. And there's there's – First world countries around, Sweden being one of them that is nearly virtually cashless, right? So there's a right. model to follow, and I think that we'll get there eventually. It may that is a longer term play. I'm, you know, I think 20 years out or 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 more. Our ability of our government to regulate appropriately, I don't have a lot of confidence in because right. we what we've seen is that, you know, our senators and our congressmen are not very well educated in terms of the innovations that are coming out right. and. We've got unless we get legislators that are in there that will really sit down and take the time to understand, then it becomes a challenge. Uh, We are talking with Les Matthews of uh, Mastercard. He's our senior vice president of business development and card management. You're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'd also be interested to get your opinion on how you think banks are prepared for the next. I mean, we're seeing e-commerce grow and grow. Are they prepared for what is that next wave? Because seemingly Amazon's making purchases mm-hmm. each and every week that, that's taking e-commerce to the next yeah. level. We see how Alibaba has grown. Yeah. Are, are, are banks and, and companies like MasterCard ready for that next wave? I think uh, I certainly think MasterCard is, and I think a lot of banks are. I think what's going to happen is the ones that aren't are just going to they're, – they're either going to get purchased – or they're going to fall behind. So more consolidation, more possibly. consolidation, possibly. Yeah. But that's a tricky, you know, place because a lot of large banks have can't consolidate. They they right. legally can't buy more banks. So it's it's a challenge for a lot of banks. But that's where we come into play in trying to help them move this along. Nice meeting you. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Les Matthews uh, with Mastercard, Senior Vice President of uh, Business Development and Card Management here on Knowledge of Wharton. We will take a break. Come back with more of our show in just a minute. You're listening to Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton. School. Welcome back to the show. Knowledge of Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School as we continue on from the uh, Philadelphia Convention Center as uh, we are here today for the Power of Performance Conference, which is presented by the National Black MBA Association and by Prospanica. It has certainly been, to say the least, an eventful last week or two in the sports world with what has gone on in the NFL as well as the NCAA bribery scandal to discuss those events and how the business of sport has been impacted by all of this. It's a pleasure to have in Kevin Blackstone, who you probably have seen over the years on a variety of ESPN programming. He is also a journalism professor at the University of Maryland. Thank you for your time today. Thank you. I have to, I guess, start with the the bribery scandal. And having been around college sports, I understand that that this has unfortunately been a component. But I think even people that understand that this stuff has happened were caught off guard by what happened and the fact that the FBI is now involved. Absolutely. I mean, generally, this is something that just the NCAA gets involved in if they catch wind of it. Um, but now you've got the feds involved, you've got federal indictments, um, and who knows how wide this net Uh, has been cast Um, because, as you just alluded to, we know that this sort of thing has gone on in college sports for a very long time, now tying the two huge um, uh, athletic apparel makers to it, Nike and Adidas, um, takes it to uh, another level. So, uh, you know, I was just talking to one of my best friends who's a college basketball coach just the other day after the whole thing happened, and he was trying to figure out, you know, where will it end? Yeah. Because uh, clearly these um, were not the only characters um, and schools uh, who were involved. But the fact that, that you have – and again, this is something that's not surprising to me in any right. way, shape, or form – the fact that you have the accusations against the gentleman from Adidas of paying high school players right. to wear Adidas – Right. So that eventually, if they would become pro, they would be Adidas representatives. Sure. It's, it, n- it's not new, no, but, it's but not. for a lot of people, it's, it's shocking to them. Right. Um, but, you know, uh, last year um, uh, when uh, the Under Armour CEO, Kevin Plank, um, became part of Donald Trump's uh, business 
committee or whatever yeah. they they called it <clears throat> uh he caught a lot of heat heat about that and uh, i remember writing my column in the washington post about it um because what that did was it trickled down the pipeline yeah. to the source of under armor's um strength which was getting shoes and gear on young kids who then go to colleges and then getting that gear into colleges, um, which kind of influences some of the better players who may wind up going pro like Steph Curry. So all of a sudden, Steph Curry was being asked as the biggest endorser of Under Armour what he thought about Kevin Plank's involvement with Donald Trump. Yeah. And so that's how deep this entire thing is. And, uh, you know, I guess the, the feds are, are really looking at the shoe companies yeah. in terms of looking at these payments now as what they've always been, but actually to call them bribes under the federal sure. code yeah. is another level. But I, I think to a degree the, the, the college sports should have seen this coming. When you have the Justice Department going after FIFA officials a year ago, mm-hmm. I mean, if they're starting to kind of spray their net globally sure. about sports, certainly you would think, and obviously they were at the time, they were looking at the NCAA and colleges, and certainly right now, there have to be a ton of college coaches, football, basketball primarily, right. that have to be looking over their shoulders right now. Sure, and that's a great point. I hadn't thought about uh, the, the FIFA investigation, um, but you know, it comes down to this sham that we have called amateurism. And we know that college sports have been professionalized for a very long time. Everyone has been, uh, everyone is making money off of college sports in a legitimate fashion, except for the labor. And now we see labor being pulled into this on the other end of these bribes. If, if, if college sports were indeed professionalized, um, uh, and above board about it, um, you could look at these sorts of payments as uh, signing bonuses, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but instead, yeah. um, I- instead they're bribes. And so I think um, with so many things happening in the college sports right now, it's re- I think this is another uh, uh, another domino that is going to force it to rethink its economic model. We also have a lawsuit filed, I think, uh, just earlier this week or late last week um, uh, by one player. Uh, against the NCAA um, demanding that uh, he be paid uh, and treated as an employee. So you've got a variety of things going on right now that are really threatening um, this amateur, uh, this amateurism um, notion of, of college sports. Kevin Blackstone of uh, ESPN and uh, also professor at the University of Maryland joining us here on Sirius XM 111. Uh, so I guess the question is, how do you do that? How do you separate that? One suggestion we were talking about the bribery case uh, last week uh, was maybe taking football and basketball and kind of splitting them off from the other college sports because as you and I both know, those are the two primary revenue drivers of, of, of college athletics these days. The other sports are great for all of the kids that are playing them, right. but they're not the revenue drivers that football and basketball are. I've, I've been arguing that for, for years. You know, it's hard, you're hard-pressed to go to a major college campus um, that is not uh, related in some way to a medical hospital, right. which, which they call teaching hospitals. Right. And in those teaching hospitals... Um, uh, students who are on the path to become doctors uh, work and learn the trade uh, and the science of being a doctor. And while they're there, guess what? They get paid and they get treated just like employees. So I don't understand why it is that college football and basketball players at major universities who bring in revenue, who put in uh, who knows how many hours a week uh, for their craft, uh, are not uh, allowed, just like their coach, just like the athletic director, um, just like the uh, officials and referees who handle their games on the weekend, just like those of us in the media um, who cover these games, are not also allowed to be paid. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I think that needs to be done. Um, what I've argued is that um, – 
those sports should be divorced from the college campus because we're the only country on earth that ties um, for-profit sports using college athletes to the university itself in a way that it also makes a mockery of higher education. Right. Yeah. Um, they have the mission of college sports and the mission of, of, of the academy are completely different. Would you like to see the one-and-done rule just totally done at this point? Absolutely. Yeah. I, I don't, I, I, I've never understood it. And to me, that's a, that's a direct restriction on trade. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you've heard it argued, you know, if, you know, if, Bill Gates didn't have to stay in school before right. for four years right. before he could he could start Microsoft. You know, Dell didn't have to stay in school before he started Dell yeah. Computers. Uh, you know, if you're talented enough uh, at whatever age it is uh, to get a paycheck for your athletic ability, I think you should be able to you should be able to do that. And I and I you know and I think that um, at that revenue generating level of football and basketball players, you know. You, you can treat them um, like you do employees of a university who get tuition remission right. and get an opportunity to pursue a degree um, as they want, but the, their pursuit of that degree is not tied to their uh, athletic ability. You know, the, 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 the coach can't take away that ability um, because they turned out not to be as good a player or because they got hurt or, or, or something like that um, or because um, – they weren't matriculating through through the university. Sure, yeah. You know, one of the things that always that struck me when I started um, teaching was that <clears throat> I would get uh, if if I have an athlete in the class whose sport is underway during that particular uh, semester, they present me with a letter, and the letter says that on this date, that date, and another date, um, I will not be in class because my team is playing. Sure. Wherever. Sure. And yeah. so for travel reasons, um, which to me is just really odd because we're not there to I mean, the academy doesn't ex- exist that way. It's not you. If another student came up and said, you know what, I can't be in class this day, that day and another day because right. I'm going to do whatever, you know, I would probably suggest to that student that you find another class sure. to better fit your schedule. Yeah, right. But that's not the way. That's not the way this relationship between sports and, and the academy works. What's been your reaction to what has happened in the NFL over the last week or so? And, and obviously this has been something right. that has been been, been building uh, to what we have seen uh, in games the last couple of weeks. Yeah, uh, I was dismayed and disappointed because the protest that Colin Kaepernick started in the preseason of 2016 was about a very specific issue. Yeah the uh, police brutality and lethality gone unchecked by the judicial system targeting black males. That was his reason for dropping to a knee. What we just saw happen last week, last weekend, was a rebuttal to Donald Trump, who challenged the manhood of NFL players and and threatened the livelihood of NFL owners. It had nothing to do with Colin Kaepernick. Right. And so then you wound up not having a protest or a demonstration um, in a sense that uh, challenges um, authority or challenges the government or challenges governing, but instead you had these quote-unquote shows of unity against something the president said, um, which could be very short-lived. Um, and, uh, and, I, and so I, I just thought that, I, I thought that the entire Colin Kaepernick um, protest in the span of about 48 hours had been defanged and had been diluted um, and had been lost. What role do you think the NFL could have or should play in, in, in this process now? Well, you know, they've already played one, one role. Their one role was to start this in the first place. Right. Because before 2009, um, the national anthem was played, and then the players were Came playing out on the out field. On the field. Yep. Yep. Then they said, nope, we want this to be 
we we want the players out there standing at attention because it was a partnership between the exactly. NFL and and, and military, military elements exactly yep. exactly yep. so um, they provided this platform in the first place um, so I don't think there's anything they can do now uh, they you know they I, you know I I suspect when the new collective bargaining agreement comes up they could do as the NBA did many many years ago they could put a provision in there that says. Uh, or could try to put a provision in that says um, players have to stand at attention for for the national anthem. Yeah. Um, uh, but under this new, with this new climate and the debate that's been going on in this country, and the and the discussion about uh, uh, freedom of speech and First Amendment rights, um, I think they would have a hard time um, almost sticking. That's it would almost be akin to putting toothpaste back into the tube yeah, at this yeah. point. And I think they would look um, really hypocritical. And, and the shame of it is, is is that we're talking about something where the almighty dollar is, sure. dr- is driving a lot of this conversation right now. And that Absolutely. may be the most disappointing thing of the process. A- Absolutely. I mean, yeah. the, owners, the owners didn't drop to a knee with Colin Kaepernick. Um, some of them came out and s- said that he has a right to do it he did and they understood it but they weren't they weren't there locking arms with him right they didn't decide to stand up until right donald trump donald trump challenged them and said that uh uh these guys ought to be fired um and if they're not fired or suspended that uh fans should turn out turn off the game that's direct threat to your gate receipts yep your advertisers, and your television contract. Great so, of course, they're going to stand. Great having you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Kevin Blackestone of uh, ESPN and the University of Maryland. And continuing our conversation about the business of sport, but from the retail side, we welcome in Mark O'Brien, who is the current president of Mizuno USA. Look at retail and sports apparel companies. It's certainly a challenging market out there right now. He's dealing with changes in retail, just like any other retail store. Mizuno has actually developed an interesting partnership with the Atlanta Braves, which we're going to talk about uh, in a little bit, uh, allowing people to going, going into the games to be able to do a variety of different things, but also outside in a store. We'll talk about that just in a couple of minutes, but it's great to have Mark O'Brien here at the, at the table with us. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great so, to be here. So I guess let's start with, with just the retail landscape right now and what it's like when you have all of this, this competition for the entertainment dollar, for the retail dollar, when you're talking about yourselves and all of the other companies that are involved in this landscape. What are the biggest challenges for you and Mizuno right now? I think just across the industry, everybody's trying to figure it out, whether whether you're in sporting goods or any any really retail category. It's how do you best reach the consumer and how do you provide an experience for the consumer that's that's going to be a value to them? What is that value proposition? Because with the onslaught and development of e-commerce and certainly the growth of the likes of certainly Amazon and what and the success that they've had in in really training the consumer that you can uh, just with a, a click or two have whatever product that might be of interest to you at your door, even in the same day, let alone next day or two days, it's really changed the mindset of consumers' expectations. So retail really has to figure out how do they, how do they deliver on the needs of consumers, get them to a store that might be out of their way or an inconvenience when consumers today can just go online, whether that's on a desktop or even their mobile device, and uh, have have that same experience and get product to their doorstep even quicker. So seemingly that feels like it's almost like a 180-degree shift from what maybe Mizuno or other companies were doing back in the 80s and 90s to what you have to do now to be able to to grab the attention of the consumer and get them to spend those discretionary dollars. Yeah, it's it's truly the value proposition. Why why should they come visit your store? What are you going to provide to them that's above and beyond what they can just do in their living room through a few clicks and have the product delivered to their doorstep without ever having to go anywhere? So what does that look like? What does that experience look like? Uh, what is that? Why is that product better or different than maybe what they can get online, etc.? So certainly it's it's a uh, transformational time for the industry, and everyone's really really gunning for how to figure it out and, and what it looks like. It's interesting. Mizuno, I think for a lot of sports fans uh, here in the United States, is seen as a company as 
a baseball company. But it, it is a multifaceted level, as we were talking before, and because you are involved in so many other sports, uh, you know, running, volleyball, y- you name it. I mean, there there are a variety of elements to what Mizuno tries to be to be successful in the United States. Yeah, thank you. And yeah, you, Mizuno is a premium performance sports brand, and and our goal is is to really make sure that the products we bring to market are not not only at at parity, but better than any of the competition. And so you look at, you know, you look at our golf clubs, our, our, our irons, uh, the JPX line that launched this year. This isn't me saying, it's the industry saying how great the JPX line is. Uh, the MPs that just launched two weeks ago, fantastic reviews uh, from the industry and from consumers. Uh, and of course, consumers are king in, in the marketplace. So we're really fortunate with, that we can have such premium products, whether that's in baseball, softball, golf, running, volleyball, and even uh, upcoming sports that we're looking into, such as uh, tennis, where we just partnered with the BB&T Atlanta Open uh, and uh, introduced some Mizuno tennis footwear that, that was the first time it was in the U.S. Since you mentioned golf, I'll, I'll touch on that for a second. How has that landscape changed, especially with some of the the adjustments that other companies have made? I mean, Nike has obviously changed its philosophy on golf. Adidas and TaylorMade have changed their uh, philosophy on it as well. Is there kind of an opening there for Mizuno to maybe be able to to take that next step where you know there may not have been that ground before? Well, absolutely. I I think the opportunity exists for Mizuno because a lot of people just aren't maybe familiar with the brand. Uh, It's not necessarily the top of mind brand like some of our competitors. Uh, But once you get our product, Mizuno product, um, in the hands of the consumer, the athlete, uh, they realize the, the quality and the attention to detail that goes into um, you know, whether it's our, our golf clubs or our baseball gloves or softball gloves, um, and the master craftsmen that, that spend so much time and attention to the details to make these products so, so incredible. I mentioned the, the partnership that you're doing with the Atlanta Braves. Go into that a little bit because there's a couple elements to it. One being an interesting store, basically, or a different kind of store that you have basically near the Braves ballpark. Yeah, the Atlanta Braves, thank you for mentioning that. The the partnership, this is the first partnership Mizuno's ever had with a, a Major League Baseball club. And, and the Atlanta Braves, what they embarked on this year, uh, Derek Schiller and Mike Plant, um, SunTrust Park is is the, the, the mecca of all baseball parks. They built just an incredible uh, baseball stadium and, and at SunTrust Park. But r- SunTrust Park is the anchor to the Battery Atlanta, and the Battery is actually a retail lifestyle uh, epicenter as well uh, in Atlanta, and it, it combines uh, uh, restaurants and retail uh, all around, and, and condos and, and apartments all around a, a baseball setting. Mm. Um, so it's a really different experience than you'd, you'd really have anywhere else, and it's why it's garnered so much attention and why SunTrust Park was recognized as Stadium of the Year. Uh, the the retail center that we opened is is actually an experience center, and this goes back to exactly what we were just talking a few minutes ago about um, you know what we wanted to do. We didn't want to open a traditional sporting goods retail store mm-hmm. uh, or an outlet store. That that's not the Mizuno brand. What we wanted to do, we wanted to open an experience center where consumers could come in and really get a feel for the brand and the premiumness of the brand. And there's no better way to do that than to actually go into a swing lab uh, if you're a golfer and go into the and have your your golf DNA examined and, and detailed out so you get fitted for the exactly the right clubs based on your swing or a baseball player going into our swing the other swing lab for baseball and softball where we do an analysis on your swing and get you in exactly the right size spec weight of a baseball or softball bat and of course, over in the running lab, you you get you know no no person's uh, left and right foot are the same, uh, they're not symmetrical. So wh- what you know what is that? What's the right shoe for you based on your foot size, your gait, how you run, uh, your pronation, and we get you fitted for the right Mizuno shoes. And it's all about Mizuno being the premium performance sports brand and giving that premium experience. So you're not going to see a lot of product all over the floor. You're not going to be inundated with slat walls and product everywhere. What you're going to see is a real premium experience. And then we bring in experts in the field. So for example, we, uh, we brought in a master craftsman from uh, Japan and he was uh, hand making ball gloves uh, during a, a base uh, Braves homestand. And you could literally come in and pick out a glove and he'd, he'd restring it for you. He'd condition it for you. He'd uh, put the whole glove together for you. You could even bring in your current Mizuno glove and he'd, uh, 
He'd uh, tear it apart and rebuild it for you, and you'd have a refurbished Mizuno ball glove uh, ready to go in, in just within hours. But is it amazing to you how, how big the sports industry has become when you think about all the travel sports and the equipment and, and you know kind of all the pieces to it i saw one story it's like a nine billion dollar industry right now it's, it's just amazing how much money that's being spent here yeah and it's it's funny you mentioned that we actually partnered with uh, lake point uh sports uh lake point is is the uh, premier uh sports vacation destination in just outside of atlanta where a lot of travel teams the best of the best travel to lake point uh to compete year round right. uh, and they've got uh some of the best uh they've got the best baseball facilities uh they've got an incredible indoor facility where they host volleyball uh, as well as basketball tournaments, uh, but it, it's it's really around the the industry that is sport, but providing um, youth today's youth with unbelievable experiences on premium fields or premium courts, and and that's why partnering with Lake Point made a lot of sense for Mizuno because of of their premium environment that they provide these athletes these premier athletes with our brand, which is that 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 premium. Uh, performance sports brand. Now, did I see a story where Mizuno is is doing something with the Braves in the stadium where if you go to the game and you forget to bring your glove with you, you can actually right. get a glove at the stadium so potentially you can catch a foul ball. Absolutely. You know what? <laughs> what uh, it's, it's so great that you mentioned that. The Mizuno glove experience at SunTrust Park. Uh, you, you go in, you forget your glove, uh, your son forgets his or your daughter forgets their glove, you can go into the Mizuno glove experience. There's two stations throughout the ballpark, and um, it's free. You, you don't, you're not charged for it. Uh, you can pick out a glove that one of the big league players is wearing. Um, you know, you can pick out the glove that maybe Chipper Jones was, you know, he wore back in the day or, yeah. or Jenny Finch, uh, one of the greatest softball players of all time who, who uh, is a supporter of Mizuno. Uh, you, can, you can check out her glove. And um, we actually, the, the first person that did on opening day, she, uh, she checked out a glove and she caught a ball. True story. That's a great story. It's a true story. You can't ask for anything better than that. Couldn't have scripted it. Mark, thanks for your time today. Wish you all the best. Thank, Thank you. you. Appreciate it. Mark O'Brien, current uh, president for Mizuno USA. Well, we hope everybody has enjoyed our show here today. There are many thanks to send out, including the staff of the National Black MBA Association, including their media coordinator, Latanya Story. Our staff, including Patty McMahon, Monique Nazareth, and our on-site engineer, the phenomenal, incredible, always entertaining Wayne Davis. Dion Simpkins back at our Sirius XM 111 studios and as well our sound engineer Danielle Bruno. Thanks for joining us. We will be back with you in our studios tomorrow with another edition of Knowledge at Wharton at 10 a.m. Eastern time right here on Sirius XM 111 at Business Radio powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 